After Joshua was dead, God spoke to the people of Judah and he said, go in and take out the Canaanites. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And thank you for watching today. This is Bible Discovery TV. We go through the Bible in one year. Today we're dealing with the book of Judges, the first book, and it is something. We're gonna talk about this in five minutes. What did they do? What did Judah do? Well, we'll talk about it. Coming up in about 20 minutes time is Corey and Ryan. Corey. All right, so in Joshua and Judges, we begin to read about uh, horse warfare uh, that Israel is having to come up against. So we're gonna be discussing that a little bit later on. Ryan? Today, my segment's all about the brutal assassination of Sisera, which is recorded in both Judges chapters four and five. But some believe these two accounts are in contradiction. So we're gonna see if that's true a little bit later on. Very good, Janice? It's our fun Friday wrap-up question. I have to say that very distinctly or I'm going to get my tongue tied. I hope you're ready. It's anywhere from Joshua one, to Judges 3. Judges 1, 1 through 13. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as wife. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 13.
Judges 1, Judges 2, and Judges 3, as we continue reading through the Bible, this becomes very important. Um, as we do so, we have to remember that the fact is that the Bible was not written for good publicity of ancient Israel. And it's very apparent when you look at the book of Judges. <laughs> I mean, if anyone were trying to write a book of propaganda, they would steer away from most of the stories contained in this biblical book. No, the Bible isn't attempting to gloss over human sin. In fact, it tends to highlight it for us. The Bible is instead committed to the mission of God to save mankind. The Savior of the world would eventually come from this sorry state presented in the book of Judges, that is, Israel. Jesus the Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, he would come to earth. He would pay the cost of our sin and make a way for us to be reconciled to God forever. To tell this truth is important, and the Bible had to tell the truth about the failures of humanity in order to tell this one. And so we find ourselves here. After the partial success of a generation of Joshua, we begin the steady decline of Judges. In its pages, we are shown an Israel who once again needs rescuing. And this time, not from the Egyptians, but from the results of their broken covenant. What a fascinating book. Now, take your Bible guide and turn to, to this particular passage because Matthew 3 is an interesting one. And if you don't have a Bible guide, why not? Write to us and you can get a hold of yours. You can write to us or call us. Or you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on the page and it'll take you to a page where you can donate. Thank you so much for your donations. That's what keeps us alive here. That's what keeps us going. We don't have big grants from anybody or we just are living on the daily offerings from people. So thank you for that. And then it takes you to a page that's created just like it's printed and you can download it. Today, the unpleasant truth. Ouch. That's what I would say when we begin to read this book. And Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus Christ, help us. Help us because this isn't a great story of of radical people who are just amazing. It's a story of your help. You calling people out, anointing them, changing them, positioning them to help us, Lord. And that's what we pray for and we see in Jesus' name. Show it to us. Amen and amen. Judges chapter 1 begins this way. This is really interesting. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's an interesting question, isn't it? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. What do you think happened? Watch this, verse 3. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight again the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now, this is fascinating. You see, God directed the children of Israel to have Judah go first to fight and overcome. We need to hear God and not make excuses for what or how he speaks. God said, send Judah. And Judah said, okay, okay, Lord, Simeon, come with me. 
God was not enough for Judah. Now that's the beginning of Judges. That's the first couple of verses. So here we already see the weakening of the nation. When we totally depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when miracles take place. That's when stuff happens that's impossible. We need to keep that in mind, especially for today, don't we? Well, it's interesting. Joshua chapter 1, verse 4. Here's what it says. Pay attention to this. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Wow. Verse 7. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. That is amazing that the Bible records what he said. God brought Adonai Bezek down. He was repaid for what he had done to others. Now listen carefully, listen to this. God judges us in what we do and how we live. What we do and how we live. Now, as I think, that's how I act and that's how I am. What I think comes out of me, what, I, what you think comes out of you. So God says, change your heart. Come to me and change the inside of you and it will change everything you do. We are going to be considered based on what we do and how we act. Very, very important. Let's go on because this is interesting, eight, eight to 13. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They took it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains and the south and in the lowlands, and then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kerjeth Arabah, and they killed Shisha, Ahimam, and Talmai. From there they went down against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kerjeth Sephor. And they and Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kerjeth Sephor and takes it to him, I will give my daughter, Aksa, as wife. And Othniel, remember him, he's going to be coming up. The son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and so he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as his wife. Fascinating. Caleb was still a great leader, and the people of Israel were encouraged. Beloved, listen carefully. As we follow Jesus Christ, we become better leaders. I know everybody has dog and cat and his lizard and whatever other animal he has as a pet has a book written, How to Become a Better Leader. Self-help books are crazy. They're just amazing. But the Bible tells us as we come to the Lord and allow God Almighty, the Almighty God Adonai, as we allow Him to take our lives, we become more like him. Becoming more like Jesus is becoming a better leader. 
Leader is not about power or controlling this. Leadership is about controlling human situations in a sinful world. And that's what we become. And so, beloved, may we today come closer to God. May we take God and Jesus on us. And may we become like him. And Father, I pray today that you would help us to learn more about Jesus Christ and to take him and become more like him. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. This character of King Saul, this historical figure. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us, when we think of King Saul, we think of the bad guy foil to King David. But an entire book of the Bible is also dedicated to mostly his reign. Of course, that's 1 Samuel. So I'm really excited to jump into it today and see what we can learn about Saul. All right, so as I said at the beginning of the program, in the book of Joshua, we first see Israel coming up against horses and chariots. And it's uh, in a pretty brutal fashion. They lose battles because of this, and some battles they miraculously win. And in our reading today, we see Israel coming up against a, a, a whole chariot force, uh, and they miraculously are able to win against this force. And I say miraculously because this would have been a, a nearly impossible thing to do without horses and chariots of your own. Take a look. Beginning in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, horses are mentioned frequently in the context of war. At first, horses and chariots are the terrifying tools of the enemies of Israel, Pharaoh's chariots and the deadly iron chariotry of the Philistines, for example. In those early days of Israel as a nation, they themselves did not possess a chariotry. But as the time of the kings of Israel unfolded, horsemanship and chariot warfare became a primary goal. By the third king, Solomon, we see Israel buying horses in bulk, building chariot cities, and organizing a centralized feeding system for the nation's horses. A few generations later, during the reign of King Ahab, two enemy nations would record on documents that still survive Ahab and Israel's unusually powerful chariot force. The Teldan Stella says that Ahab brought 2,000 chariots to battle, which would represent anywhere from four to 6,000 chariot horses. This seems to confirm an Assyrian record that claims Ahab brought the strongest chariot force to the Battle of Karkar, again numbering 2,000 chariots. Scholar and modern horse professional Deborah O'Daniel Cantrell has argued for a modern misunderstanding of the archaeological evidence for horses and chariotry in ancient Israel, largely based off a misunderstanding of the needs and training regimes of horses. Her work points to the city of Megiddo as an exemplar of a chariot city, showing convincing evidence for horse stabling, including horse chewing marks on remaining feeding troughs as well as interpreting Israel's four and six chambered gates as chariot hitching stations. Chariot horses were a most feared weapon. They were trained to kill by trampling, and in the words of Cantrell, they were trained to be addicted to speed, which is what made them both a fearsome weapon and difficult to control in the heat of battle. Horses were also very difficult to kill, with spear, arrow, and sword wounds exciting them further and with their circulatory system allowing their drivers hours to get them back to camp to deal with what could have been deadly wounds. 
Horses' main weakness, on the other hand, is their stamina. Horses' exhaustion levels need to be strictly controlled by their drivers, otherwise they would work themselves to death. This meant that to battle successfully, a chariotry would need to have waves of chariots that would fight and retreat to camp for rest. Another weakness is the horse's startle reflex, which could send an excited warhorse on an uncontrolled, deadly flight. History seems to show that enemy armies were always trying new tactics to startle enemy horses while desensitizing their own horses to the same stimuli. There were parts of the war horse's apparel that did help with this. Horses wore blinders to limit their vision by up to 90%, and multiple bells were incorporated onto their gear. This could have multiple benefits, helping horses match each other's gaits, announcing their presence, and creating a comforting white noise for the horses. Whether we think of the heavenly horses that accompanied Elijah to heaven, the fearsome chariot driver King Jehu, or the war horses of Revelation, it's clear that horses were tremendously important in the history of Israel. So it's really interesting because uh, back in Joshua chapter 11, and we read of this practice as we continue to go through the Bible, we read about God giving a command to Joshua to hamstring the horses of the enemy and burn the chariots, but not to kill the horses of the, of uh, not to kill the horses, but just to hamstring them. And uh, most of us assume that by hamstringing a horse, it completely ruins it for the rest of its life. But according to Kentrell's research, that's just not true. There was a way of hamstringing a horse that it would be expected to make a full recovery. But what hamstringing it would do at the time would be make it useless for the enemy army to come back and try to reclaim those horses because they're not going, they're not going to be able to walk or run anywhere quickly. And by destroying the chariots, that asset of the enemy is gone as well. And what this would have enabled the Israelites to do is to enact their own breeding program of horses. And they would have been able to learn about how to train and ride and all of these things, so that by the time of, of Solomon, we do see Israel beginning to have a, a, a pretty robust war horse industry. It's, it's interesting because how long would it take for the horses to recover from the hamstringing? I'm really not sure, but it wouldn't it wouldn't take as long as we think. Probably a few months, uh, and then they would slowly slowly get back into it. And I'm sure some wouldn't recover well, but the point of it was keeping them alive. And the ones that recovered well could be used as war horses and training in war horses, and the ones that didn't could be used for breeding. So really interesting when you start to try to get into the mind of ancient Israel. They knew that they were going to have to accelerate their technology, um, even just for the time period of the kings to maintain their, their boundaries. But we see is God miraculously allowing them to overcome these chariot forces in the first place, which would have been a nearly impossible thing to do without chariots. So in other words, it takes them out of the main uh, idea of using them as the effort in an attack. Mm -hmm. They can't be used in an attack now, so they, they diminish the enemy's yeah. ability, but they don't kill the horse. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, Ryan. All right. Well, I know that we're not going to be reading Judges chapters four and five till tomorrow, but since I won't have the chance to talk about it then, I want to take the opportunity now. And in these chapters, we read about the defeat of the Canaanite army and the assassination of their commander, Sisera. Now, this Israelite victory over the Canaanites is recorded in both Judges chapters four and Judges chapter five. But some think that there's a contradiction between these two accounts involving the death of Sisera. So let's look at these two passages a little bit more closely. 
Though the Bible is beloved by many, still many others seek to discredit its claims that it is a divinely inspired work of God. In so doing, they make their own claims that the Bible contains many errors and contradictions. One of these supposed contradictions is found in Judges chapters 4 and 5, which recounts the assassination of Sisera. Sisera was the commander of the Canaanite army and had 900 iron chariots at his disposal. For 20 years the Israelites were cruelly oppressed, but God had promised them a victory, and a victory they had. Judges 4 records the utter defeat of the Canaanite army, but Sisera escaped on foot to the tent of a woman named Jael. So Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. This Israelite victory, including Sisera's brutal assassination, is again recounted in the very next chapter, though to some it seems contradictory. Judges chapter 5 verses 24 through 27 reads, Most blessed of women be Jael, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. The allegation here is that though Judges 4 makes it perfectly clear that Sisera was fast asleep when he died, Judges chapter 5 seems to suggest otherwise. However, Judges 5 makes no such claim. In fact, the apparent contradiction arises here because of a failure to distinguish between different literary genres. Judges chapter 4, for example, is historical narrative, but Judges 5, as a song, is clearly poetic. Determining the various literary genres is key when interpreting scripture. For example, the poem recorded in Judges 5 is probably speaking metaphorically repeating graphic, emotive language to make its point, namely that a woman triumphed over this great warrior. Even so, the poem is still perfectly harmonious with the historical account. So far from being a contradiction, this poetic retelling of events in Judges 5 really emphasizes the prophecy made by Deborah in Judges chapter 4 verse 9, that Sisera's defeat would come at the hand of a woman, which would not be the norm. Also take notice of Yael. Her strength and skill had no doubt been toughened by a common Bedouin duty of hammering down pegs to secure tents or striking them loose to take down tents. It's interesting because when I, uh, in, in 91, I, we were with the Bedouins and they used, of course, metal. But at the time for the tents, Bedouins would have used wood. Uh, and, and it's very interesting because they're, I mean, they're in the ground pretty good. So the women would have to get good at pounding mm -hmm. and hitting because the men didn't do that. 
believe it or not. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, she really was good with that hammer, I'll tell you. She certainly was. <laughs> and you see that too. And the Bible tells us that. So A brutal time, but... It, it, she did the trick. She did the mm -hmm. trick, the trick, I'm telling you. It's very, very help interesting. deliver Israel. That yes. would have taken bravery, mm. not just strength, but a lot of bravery. Well, yeah, because mm -hmm. this guy was like, I mean, he was the head of the Commander. army and yeah. all of yeah. that. And, yeah. and he's hiding in her tent. And, and uh, so that was something really good. So Deborah, of course, was the person who is the prophetess who went with them. And, uh, but it was judge. Yael mm -hmm. who actually did it. Uh, and that was good. Okay, very good. Thank you. Uh, what is the question today? Well, hey, I just want to thank all of you that are enjoying playing along with us every Friday. I see your notes and your little messages. I can't respond to all of you, but just this is a general thank you for playing along. And you know what? We're all learning together. And a lot of times I hear, I got the answer right. Or sometimes it's, I got the answer wrong, but I know that I'm learning. So that's the main thing. Now, we're going to put Ryan and Corey on the spot today. Right. You get the comfort of doing it from your home or wherever you are right now. Okay, here's the question. After the death of Joshua, in the continuing conquest of Canaan, the children of Israel asked the Lord, who should be the first to go to fight against the Canaanites? Which tribe did God choose? Did he choose the tribe of Judah, Simeon, or Benjamin? Which one of those three tribes did God choose at that time after the death of Joshua to go in and, and conquer the mm. land? Mm -hmm. Do you yeah. think you know? You're yes. both nodding yeah. your heads. You're confident in this yeah. one. Confident. We know good question, good, though. Good, good question. Thank you. Yeah, yeah we're glad that you picked something. You didn't know that we knew it, but I'm glad that you picked something that we knew. Because there's lots of details in there's there. There's lots of details. In there. So mm -hmm. this was a kind one. So yeah. Judah. We're going to say Judah. Judah. All right. Yes. Well, if you at home, if you decided that it was Judah, you are, let me read the answer. Judges 1 verse 2. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so congratulations if you got Judah. Something very interesting that I've taught on a couple of times before. I'm going to say it really quick so I can get it in. Judah, the name Judah means let him be praised or praise Yahweh or praise God. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has indeed delivered us from sin and death. And when we face any battle, we should come to God first in praise. It is he who gives us the power to overcome. I don't believe that it was a mistake in any way. I think it was a good message for us now that we come to God in praise no matter what, and he helps us to conquer all through him. Pastor Rod Hembry, that's where you go on YouTube and you can find the videos that we do. We do short little videos for you talking about the scripture and how the Bible walks with us. And it's just a great time to, to spend time talking about the Psalms and all the rest of it. So join us on YouTube, Pastor Rod Hembry. Today, let's pray. Father, help me to learn to follow your lead every day of my life, including today in Jesus name. Amen.